You are listening to StarQuest Radio. I am Kurt Remke. Equinoxes, solstices, and cross-quarter days are all hallmarks of Earth's orbit around the sun. We entered the autumnal equinox on September 22, 2017, which happened when Earth crossed the celestial equator, which is an extension of Earth's equator onto its orbital path around the sun. Because of Earth's tilt, this gives us in the northern hemisphere less time within the sun's exposure, creating our fall climate. Right now, we are heading toward the halfway point, which is marked by the fourth cross-quarter day, more popularly known as Halloween. That's right, this StarQuest Radio is our Halloween special. While Halloween is not treated as a celestial holiday in pop culture, it is actually deeply rooted in astronomy. Halloween's origin is connected back to the Celtic festivals of Samhain. During this pre-Christian time, the Celts experienced time cyclically rather than linearly. So in modern time, we experience each day as a stepping stone to get to the next one, each month as an obstacle in the way of the next, and each year a path to the new year. Before this linear time concept, the Celts interpreted time as cyclical, each cycle being marked by the celestial phases of orbit. During the cross-quarter day Samhain, time was understood to open up, almost stop. Because of this, it was believed by the Celts that the spirit world was given access to the living one, and as these spirits were believed to exist outside of the cycle of time, they could bring with them knowledge of what's to come in the future. Would the coming winter bring death to any of their people? Would their crops from summer last them through the next planting cycle? The people would leave their doors open with food on the tables to entice the spirits to come into their homes, hoping that they could answer these questions for them. Once Christianity made its mark on the Celts, they convinced them to view this day through the lens of Christianity and experience these spirits as demons that should not be welcomed into their homes. Suddenly, this neutral spirit world was now a demonic, satanic one. And suddenly, the cycle of time was now one marked by the death, rebirth, and the future re-emergence of Christ. Another element of Halloween ties the day to a very specific moment of mythological history, but also to a specific star cluster, M45, the Pleiades. These seven B-type stars have a luminous blue color to them because of their construction of neutral helium and moderate hydrogen. You can find this open star cluster within the constellation of Taurus. The Pleiades are most often referenced by scientists and night sky observers as sister stars. This is because nearly a hundred million years ago, the stars were likely all born from the same cloud of gas and dust particles. Because of this, they are paired together by a common gravitational center 430 light years away, which moves at 25 miles per second. The Pleiades are favorite to many night sky observers as they shine hundreds of times more brightly than our sun, leaving them quite visible to the naked eye and even more brilliantly through a scope. The group of stars are often perceived as a miniature version of the highly recognizable Ursa Major, or the Big Dipper. In myth, the Pleiades group are considered sisters for a more mystical reasoning. The sister star formation to the Kiowa people of North America were explained to be actual human women from a region known as the Bear Lodge Mountains in Wyoming. One night, the women of the tribe were said to sneak out into the night to dance with the stars. 
caught up in the magic of the moment, the women didn't hear the bears approaching in the darkness. When they saw the bears, they ran. They pleaded with the earth to save them. The ground rose from under them, creating a plateau which is now known as the Devil's Tower. The sisters rose from the rock and into the sky. They are said to revisit that position over the tower in midwinter, which in reality is a result of the path of their motion through the cosmos. Their path also led them to be in the peak of the night sky for the ancient Celts, which was perceived by the Celtic Druids to be that moment when spirits could cross over into the living world for the festivals of Samhain. This solidifies the Pleiades position as the supreme rulers over our Halloween night sky. So say you finished up a late night horror movie night in light of the approaching holiday and you want to cap off the night by bundling up with a few layers of flannel, grabbing some binoculars, and making a peaceful quiet night of stargazing in your backyard. A great cluster to check out besides the Pleiades is the Hyades. While this cluster does not shine as bright as the Pleiades, it is actually much closer to Earth at 150 light years away. This is because the stars of the Hyades have dimmed in their old age. You can find this cluster visually surrounding the bright red giant Aldebaran, a star that is much closer to us than the surrounding cluster, at 65 light years away. First, locate the constellation of Orion the Hunter. Find the line created by the three blue-white stars that make up Orion's belt, and follow it westward or to the right. Stop when you see the big red star Aldebaran. This is seen as the Eye of Taurus the Bull, another constellation, the head of which is the V-shape of stars surrounding Aldebaran. This V is the Hyades. While you're here at Taurus, you can visit the Pleiades. If you keep following that imaginary line that came from Orion's belt westward, past the Hyades, you'll arrive at what looks like a mini version of the Ursa Major, or the Big Dipper. That is the Pleiades. In Greek mythology, the Pleiades were the seven daughters of the titan Atlas and the nymph Pleione. The Hyades were five half-sisters to the Pleiades as they shared the same father, Atlas. The five sisters were said to be so taken by the grief of losing their brother Hyas that they rose as stars into the night. In reality, the two star clusters have no relation. With scientific study, we have learned that the Hyades contains a much higher concentration of heavy elements than any other star in its cosmic neighborhood, including our own Sun star. Its metallicity and its proper motion tie it as a relative to M44, the Praesepi cluster, or better known as the Beehive cluster. These two clusters' origins can be traced back to the same region of space. The Beehive cluster can be seen in our night sky between February and May, so we will touch back on it in a future episode. While the Hyades is known for the cluster of five brightest stars, there are 15 visible to the naked eye, and even more when viewed through binoculars. The cluster isn't as tight as the Pleiades, so viewing it through binoculars might break up the cluster formation. Another night sky feature to check out this month is the Alpha Persei Cluster. This is an open cluster that can be seen with the naked eye in the Perseus constellation. Without the aid of a scope or binoculars, it appears to be just a few luminous B-type stars. The brightest is the white-yellow supergiant Mirfak, or the Alpha Persei. But with aid from technology, the open cluster is revealed as a large group of stars. An open cluster is a group of stars that come from the same giant molecular cloud. 
These GMCs can be referred to as interstellar nurseries, as their density and size allow them to form stars. Stars are created in these dense regions when the molecules are pulled together under intense forces of gravity. The cloud's temperature increases as it shrinks and flattens. The cloud's slow spin starts to inevitably quicken as its radius shrinks. Once the gravitational pressure exceeds the outward pressure from within the core, it balances out, creating a star, which is sustained by nuclear fusion. If this balance isn't maintained, the could-be star, or protostar, collapses before it is born a true star. All right, well, that is the end of our aural trek for this Halloween episode. But earlier I noticed that NASA published a SoundCloud playlist made up of various spooky sounds that have been collected during their past and present space exploration missions. As part of this Halloween special, I'd like to go through some of these sounds and explain what you're hearing. This first one is Juno crossing Jupiter's bow and entering Jupiter's magnetosphere. Juno is a craft that arrived at Jupiter in July of 2016 and will be there until around July of next year. That's with the current budget plan. These next sounds are chorus radio waves from Earth's atmosphere that was captured by the Kepler mission. The sounds after that are light curve waves that were picked up by Kepler and then converted into sound waves. Light curves are graphs of light intensity of celestial objects or regions represented as a function of time. Again, those were sounds from the Kepler mission. The Kepler mission was specifically designed to survey our region of the Milky Way galaxy to discover hundreds of Earth-sized and smaller planets in or near the habitable zone and determine the fraction of the hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy that might have such planets. Saturn is a source of intense radio emissions, which were monitored by the Cassini spacecraft. These radio waves are closely related to the auroras near the poles of the planet. 
Afterward, you'll hear Cassini going through Saturn's rings. Here's the outgoing going ring plane crossing. These next emissions were gathered by the Galileo mission from Jupiter's largest moon, Ganymede. Again, those were sounds from the Galileo mission. It was an orbiter that was launched in October 18, 1989, and its mission was aimed to study Jupiter and its moons. It ended on September 21, 2003. These next chorus waves and whistler waves are heard by the EMFISIS instrument aboard NASA's Van Allen probes as it passed around Earth. A whistler is a very low frequency or VLF electromagnetic radio wave generated by lightning. NASA converted the audible sounds that came from the radar echoes received by Huygens during the last few kilometers of its descent onto Saturn's moon, Titan. As the probe approached the ground, both the pitch and intensity increase. Scientists will use intensity of the echoes to speculate about the nature of the surface.
This next bit is Titan's Haze. It's a laboratory reconstruction of the sounds heard by Huygens microphones. These last sounds are what I'll leave you with for tonight's Halloween episode. These are the Voyager plasma sounds. These melodious tones are created at a special frequency in a plasma with a magnetic field. The frequency is set by the number of electrons in a given volume and the strength of the magnetic field. Hence, the frequency of these waves, called upper hybrid waves, can provide a very accurate measure of the density of the plasma. These emissions were acquired by Voyager 2 as it passed through the outer magnetosphere in 1979. Happy Halloween from me and the Fort Wayne Astronomical Society, and I hope that you listen to future episodes of StarQuest Radio.